Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcast network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It is, dear listener, the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries, usually, to find <laughs> an answer. How you doing, Carrie? I'm a little depressed. Uh, because the spooky season has finally left us? Not finally. Sadly. Horrifyingly. Depressingly. But also not in a super... Fi- uh, we were talking about this yesterday. It doesn't super matter. Look, look, we've all become a little bit more internally focused into our own homes over the last couple of years. We don't get, we still don't get out as much as we'd like to. And uh, to be honest with you, baby, in these four walls, within these four walls, it's funny, during the Halloween party we had on Saturday, I had to keep taking people through the like three layers of <laughs> Halloween stuff. It's like, no, this is the stuff that's up all year round. No, that taxidermied bat. No, of course that doesn't come. What? Those, uh, those death's head moths on the walls from the uh, silence of the lambs. No, those are year round decor. Um, by your request, then there's a second layer of Halloween season, October decorations. And then there's a third layer of just party of party decorations. Yeah. And that's how I do things. And only, you know, a third to maybe a half of that stuff is going to come down now, and uh, the rest of the house is its going to stay pretty spooky uh, within these walls, Caroline. I know. It's not about me, Sean. It's about everyone finally getting to my level for one month out of the year. I know, but you keep it in your heart all year round. I do, but not everyone else does. Like a reformed uh, Ebenezer Scrooge with Christmas. <laughs> sure. Caroline, uh, being out of the spooky season, we don't have a ghost story today. We don't have the history of Halloween today, but we always keep the spooky season in our hearts on this podcast, don't we? Yeah. And today, um, I don't know if spooky's the word, but there's nothing scarier than death. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, and so we are conquering maybe our fear of death this week. Oh, by the way. I don't think so. Carrie, one, well, we're trying. <laughs> one possible name that we drew up for this podcast when we were planning it was uh, Whistling Through the Graveyard. Yes, after a screaming Jay Hawkins song. Well, that's whistling. He's whistling past the graveyard. Well, you know, it's the same, same oh, idea. One-Eyed Jack. He's a mean mother hummer, Carrie. Makes no sense, and I love it. Um, so whistling through the graveyard, whistling past the graveyard, you know, the idea of if we think about these things, if we talk about these things, uh, Mr. Rogers, Carrie. One of our uh, friend of the show, Mr. Rogers. Friend of everyone. One of the few good people in the world. Truly good. He said, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. Oh, I miss him. And so there's nothing we shouldn't talk about. And if things make us uncomfortable, we should talk about them even more. And that's why uh, this week we're going to talk exclusively about death. And specifically, I want to focus, Carrie, on famous last words. Okay. Famous last words throughout history. Um, you know, unfortunately, you have to kind of be famous to have really famous last words, but uh, famous people, uh, important people throughout history have sometimes been noted when they met death with an especial courage or lack thereof <laughs> or irony or uh, defiance. Wit. Wit often. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, as I've done the research for this episode, I, I found myself hoping, A, that I'll I don't know. Do you want time to formulate last words, or do you want it to have been over and you didn't know? Hmm. Well, if I don't die in my sleep, uh, a very old and ancient woman Titanic styles, then I hope to be a very old and ancient woman on my deathbed, surrounded by all the people I love. Um, What do you think your last words would be? 
ideally. Like a bit. Shouldn't have that shrimp or yeah. something, something, like, something along those lines. I, I hope mine is something clever, but I feel like it's just going to be me if I get the opportunity, uh, and and I have the forethought about it. You know, ideally, it would just be me telling the people that are with me, the people I love, that I love them. I, I can't think of any better last words for myself. My favorite uh, words on this list are are are, are a little bit quippy. And and of course. and plenty brave. So the, those are the, the the kind of things I'd like to bring to my last words, um, which I, hopefully I have plenty of time to formulate. <laughs> yeah, I only want time to formulate it when I've had time to formulate a, a long and illustrious life as well. Um, so let's talk, Carrie. Let's talk about some of my favorite last words of all time. Mm-hmm. And if you all are very interested in these kinds of topics, we do have a Patreon mini-sode on Famous Last Meals, which is very fun. Maybe we'll do a, a Patreon cooking show where we make some of these hideous last meals that these death row people uh, have ordered. Um, there's also, I have more material than I was expecting for this podcast. So there's a couple of, I've got a whole section on epitaphs at the end that I might cut for time uh, in which case uh, we might have some some patreon content r- related to gravestone etchings ah, my favorite uh, they are your favorite uh, you know what i can probably run through a quick at the end we'll, we'll get it in <laughs> i want to start with the ancients carrie and um when we talk about ancient last words we really put a focus on the problem with this whole podcast oh maybe we, we shouldn't tell our listeners what that is no not this whole show that we do together but this episode the problem is last words are hard to verify generally yeah generally there's only a couple of people around when the person died and they may have all kinds of reasons to either misremember or misremember what was said Mm -hmm. Um, and that's also true of maybe anything written about the ancient world whether it's about last words or not usually there's um yeah, historians took kind of a little bit more of a literary bent with their um, style. Mm-hmm. And also, a lot of times, histories were being written specifically to either big someone up after their death or uh, make them horrible enemies of the state for all time. And of course, uh, histories wit- written by the winners. So those losers or, or you know people like that, we might not have verifiable last words from them. Uh, they weren't his last words, but Winston Churchill famously said, uh, well, history will be very kind to me. I intend to write it. Well. It, and he did. He wrote a whole history of World <laughs> War II that, uh, what do you know, puts him right at the center. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, he was pretty involved. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our first dead ancient is Pythagoras. Um, it's pretty hard to get much deader than Pythagoras, Carrie. Pythagoras uh, lived from 570 to 495 BC, or BCE, as we... Is this we... the guy that invented triangles? Oh, boy. He did not invent triangles? Yeah, he was like, yeah, I think that's a triangle. He was an Ionian Greek philosopher, and he may have come up with the Pythagorean theorem, which says... Triangles, baby. Triangles, baby, exactly. Um, no, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. He, he figured out the relationship between the sides on an, of an isosceles triangle. He also is credited with coming up with the five platonic solids, mm-hmm. um, which are kind of the basic three-dimensional shapes. So uh, the pyramid, cube, um, I think dodecahedron, and then whatever the or tetrahedron, dodecahedron, and then whatever a 20-sided is called. It's all the dice shapes. 
Why not like a sphere? Um, well, he also said he knew about spheres. Everybody knew about spheres. And, and he Did said he the, invent spheres? Nobody was supposedly the first one to suggest the Earth was a sphere. Okay. Okay. I'll give it to him. He invented the Earth being a sphere. And he kind of came up with music. He kind of invented music because he invented Pythagorean tuning, which was built around perfect fifths and octaves, um, which are kind of the most pleasing intervals to the air. I don't want to get into a whole really, really nitty gritty thing with that, but it's the... With a couple of adjustments, it was the precursor to everything modern music is based on. You explaining how advanced music theory works to me and uh, listeners, I I come from a, an actually a musical family. My um, my great uncle played with Frank Sinatra. My grandfather played uh, clarinet and a zillion other instruments. Um, kind of skipped the next generation, but now I'm playing ukulele, okay? But I've, I've never done anything in school. I was in chorus. Um, my chorus teacher hated me. Uh, you know, I just, I was not a musical person. So Sean's been trying to teach me, you know, like when I sing something, like, well, what does that mean? Why am I doing that? Um, but when you when you try to explain these things of, of fifths and octaves and things to me, it really, it must sound like how I sound to you when I'm trying to explain the details of the John Bonet Ramsey case. Yeah, but you have, <laughs> it's interesting because you do have a perfect kind of ear. So when you're singing oh, well, thank you. harmony, you're always going to fifths and fourths. Uh, you just don't know it. But that just seems like what you should be doing. That seems... Yeah, that's what Pythagoras would have said. It's the perfect interval. Well, I guess I invented triangles too. Checkmate. Now, he might not have come up with all that stuff. Remember, we're talking about 500 years before um, Jesus walked the earth. So um, his predecessors or followers may have come up with those things, but they're all named after Pythagoras because he's so strongly associated with them. Pythagoras was opposed, however, to a democratic constitution for his city-state of Croton. In an angry- is, that, is that where uh, Superman's from? <laughs> yes, that's right. And so that's an angry mob was chasing Pythagoras, and he was put in a little egg mm. and sent to Earth by his father Jor-El. Mm. Um, no, Pythagoras is probably apocryphal. Unfortunately, last words, his recorded last words, Carrie, mm-hmm. came when he almost, supposedly, almost escaped his pursuers, these um, evil Democrats from Croton. And Pythagoras's only escape route was across a fava bean field. <laughs> Um, he was big on uh, uh, Chianti. Living, you know, big. <laughs> he was big on living in harmony with the natural world. A lot of his followers were vegetarians, and um, Pythagoras said, supposedly, it is better to perish here than to kill all these poor beans Aww. by like rushing across this fava bean field. And so he was killed on the spot. And that was the end of circles and, and triangles. Yeah, we've never seen a triangle since. Uh, but we have seen circles, sorry. And, and that actually plays right into our next ancient <laughs> oh. Archimedes of Syracuse. Ah, the owl. Yes, the owl from uh, the sword <laughs> and the stone, of course. Um, that owl was named after Archimedes of Syracuse, one of the most brilliant mathematicians of all time. He's really, uh, you know, we don't know exactly what Pythagoras did and didn't come up with out of all the stuff that's named after him. Archimedes was real serious. He lived from 287 to 212 BCE in Syracuse, obviously, in Sicily. Oh, and, upstate New York. <laughs> yes, yeah, in upstate. <laughs> he went to Syracuse University, and uh, he was known there for laying the groundwork for calculus by coming up with formulas to calculate the area of, like, you know, picture a, a quadratic curve or any curve. Picture a curved just, line on a bar yeah, graph. A curve, on yeah. a graph. He, he, Listeners, I'm. 
I'm very bad at math. I'm good at other things. I'm not good at math. Pythagoras <laughs> figured out the equations to calculate the area underneath many different mm. types of curves. Mm -hmm. He also figured out how to calculate the area of many 3D solids, like cubes and uh, pyramids. Mm -hmm. So he really, this is the beginning of what calculus is now in modern geometry. So you're telling me he's a smart guy. Very smart guy. And unfortunately, uh, he was, you know, many smart people are kind of lost in, they say Albert Einstein was absent-minded. You know, he had no, no mind for kind of real world uh, concerns. Maybe that was true of Archimedes of Syracuse too, because it does seem like a lapse in common sense. That got him killed during the Roman takeover of Syracuse in 212 BC. One story says when Archimedes was working on a mathematical diagram, he was doing kind of a thought experiment with circles, and he had all these circles written out on his table. So he invented circles. He did not invent circles, but he was very good at figuring out how big they were. Hmm. And Roman soldiers burst in to demand, hey, you have to come on and meet with the, the consul Marcellus. We're not going to kill you. He says you're real smart, but you got to come with us. And Archimedes said, No! Uh, he's supposedly cried, Noli turbare circulos meos. Uh, don't disturb my circles. Mm. Upon which the soldier killed him. <laughs> and he died there in the room. Yeah, I'm going to put that one on the soldier. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> sure. He doesn't know what's going on. Circles, what do you mean? Sean, you're a very smart fellow, uh, but you are very absent-minded. Please don't use Archimedes or any of these other guys as a uh, an excuse um, you're going to get killed over circles if that's the case. No, don't disturb my run. I've almost beaten Hades. Mm -hmm. Nero was the fifth emperor of the Roman Empire. He uh, lived from 37 to 68 AD. Not a super long life. Nero was the son-in-law and adopted heir of Emperor Claudius. He came to the throne after Claudius' death at age 16. And he was actually... You might not think of, you might not think this, you might not assume this, but Nero seems to have been pretty popular among the people. He was a populist leader, and he would shower Rome in bread and circuses, um, but his tax policies made him very unpopular with the Senate and with Roman elites, who had all the real power. Uh, the stories that are told about Nero, Nero are absolutely crazy. Yeah, yeah. They're worth another podcast in and of themselves, so... We're definitely going to... We're definitely going to do some just ancient history crazy people, right? Oh, for point. sure. I, I don't know if I, I already have a I don't, little. I don't know whether I combine the Nero podcast with the Caligula podcast or if they each deserve their own. Nero, you can also tie into the Book of Revelation. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, he did supposedly kick his beloved wife uh, when she was pregnant until she died. And then he not was... not so beloved, Sean. And then he was like crazy with grief over that. And he had this eunuch found who kind of looked like his wife. He wasn't a eunuch. He found had a boy found who looked like his wife. And he had him turned into a eunuch. And then he married him. Mm-hmm. But we don't know how much of that is just invented. Because in Rome, like, being a bad leader was equated with being violently insane and uh, sexually depraved. So, you know, again, you get these stories about Caligula as well. Right. Hmm. One major scandal uh, during his reign was a fire, famous fire in Rome that basically burned the Eternal City to the ground. And opponents blamed Nero. That's where we get the Nero fiddled while Rome burned thing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Nero blamed and brutally repressed Christians, so the Christians didn't like him either. Um, Revelation, that's why that comes up. 
there's a really strong and I would argue ironclad argument that Revela- the book of Revelation is a political satire about Nero. But that is a uh, conversation. It's like not the place to do political satire, you know. It's actually, this isn't National Lampoon. It actually kind of is. The Bible's just history and satire from the Jewish perspective. They are a funny people. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about the book of Revelation in a different podcast because <laughs> it's fun and quite spooky. Great. But if you transliterate Nero's name into numbers in Hebrew, it is 666. The number of the beast. Nero was an avid lyre player and poet, and he would make public performances and make everyone come, um, as well as competing in chariot races and gladiatorial games, which he always won. Um, yeah. Yeah, of course. But that sounds like, well, yeah, of course he did, because we, I've seen Gladiator. That's what emperors did. Roman emperors never did this. Hmm. There's like only a handful, if any, other guys who like got in the arena and swung a sword around and stuff. Nero really thought he was the tits. Yeah, but there were a lot of Roman emperors. So, I mean, you know, there were bound to be just on the law of averages, some guys that did this kind of stuff. Right. But this made him, uh, you know, even more popular. He was really kind of a hero <laughs> among the people. It's like if the president was racing in NASCAR and, and getting in the ring with Floyd Mayweather. Oh, boy. Fleeing a tax revolt in 68 AD, which is what finally brought about his, about his downfall. Not the fire, not the gladiatorial <laughs> games, but a tax revolt from the uh, upper crust. Nero saw the writing on the wall and, like many deposed Roman emperors, decided to kill himself. Mm-hmm. But he was nervous, so supposedly he asked a subordinate, like, no, you do it first, as an example. And, to kill himself? Yeah, and then that guy killed himself. And then Nero was like, ah, I still don't know. But the Senate was showing up, and so then he had his secretary, he made his secretary kill him instead, because he couldn't do it. Oh, boy. And then, as Nero bled out, he's said to have mourned, what an artist the world loses in me. (laughs) Those will be my last words. Yeah, but you weren't also an emperor. Well, not yet. (laughs) No. Carrie, uh, Christian martyrs. There were many Christian martyrs under Nero's time. And Christian martyrs throughout history have had some of the most badass... Brutal. ...kind of one-liners. Oh, brutal deaths, but also badass one-liners on the way out. Sure. If you're meeting your death as willingly as most Christian martyrs, uh, at least the ones who became saints and stuff. If you're meeting your death as willingly as many of them did, um, you usually have a few few choice words for the people putting you there. (laughs) Marcus of Arethusa was the bishop of Arethusa, Mm. and he was martyred under the Roman emperor Julian who was the last pagan emperor of Rome. Uh, Julian was, as many emperors during Rome's long decline, hailed as emperor by his soldiers. They were just like, yeah, this guy now. And so began a bloody civil war against the previous aggressively Christian emperor, Constantius II, who had like made pagan worship illegal and all this stuff. So as Julian was consolidating his power, many powerful Christian clergymen were purged or killed to, um, you know kind of help with his whole, we're bringing back the old ways thing. Mm-hmm. And Marcus of Arethusa was one of these, and he gave a pretty badass send-off, crying out, how I, how I am advanced despising you that are upon the earth. And this, was a, and this was as he was being stung to death by bees in 362 AD. So it's literally a not the bees moment. How did they kill him with bees they hung him up in a cage Uh both the cage and marcus were covered in honey wow and surrounded with beehives and they just left him out there for as many days as it took for him to get stung uh, to death 
You know, over a hundred episodes in, I still got to say, people are sick. Yeah, so like his last words were probably, oh shit, or something like that, but, <laughs> but he said this first. Right. John Hooper was the Bishop of Worcester and Gloucester and a, pro- and a proponent of Protestant Reformation in England in the early 1550s. It was a tough time to be a uh, big fan of Protestant Reformation because, well, let me back up. Hooper actually opposed and helped foil a plot to put the Protestant Lady Jane Grey on the throne instead of Mary Tudor, who would become Mary I. But this didn't do him any good after Mary took the throne, and John Hooper was burned to death February 9th, 1555, for talking too much Protestant stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. But before they burned him, they offered him a pardon. A stool was brought out with a already signed pardon from the queen. And he was told all he had to do to get it was to pledge his immortal soul to Catholic doctrine once again. And Hooper said to have cried, if you love my soul, away with it. Dang. It's like, nope, not going to get me. Mm-hmm. And, then they, and then they burned him to death. Oh, God. Now, you know who wasn't burned to death is American witches, Carrie. That's true. But we have one last inspirational shot of martyr bravery from within the horrors of the Salem witch trials. Ah, your favorite. We have covered them before. Uh, Check those episodes out. It was um, last Halloween-ish. Yeah. Sarah Good, Caroline, as you know, was hanged along with four other women on July 29th of 1692. When she was found guilty, she allegedly called out to the judges... You are a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. She said that too? Yeah, I know. Giles Corey is often recorded as having said something about blood to drink to the sheriff. This was uh, what she yelled to the judges. It's a classic witchy thing to say. And there's also, possibly apocryphal, I couldn't find any backup. There's also a story that one of those judges died a few years later choking on his own um, blood. But I bet a lot of people choked on their own blood in the early 1700s. Yeah, but especially those guys. Good riddance. Presidential assassins. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Have had some good last words, Carrie. Uh, they're not good guys. But sometimes... <laughs> but uh, I, I think a lot of presidential assassins are kind of funny. As people. Hmm. I mean, there's some unintentional comedy in their lives. Okay. So John Wilkes Booth shot President Abraham Lincoln... As you know, Carrie, in the back of the head, in a theater box at Ford's Theater in Washington. Mm-hmm. We should do a whole episode on the Lincoln assassination. There's so much documentation. Sean, uh, it's too close to home. Oh, that's right. Carrie, uh, <laughs> t- tell the audience about... Uh, I must have told this story sometime before. Maybe when we were doing the haunted theaters or something. But long story short, when I was little, we were watching a documentary about the Lincoln assassination, as you do with four to five-year-old children. Um, And I started crying uncontrollably, could not be consoled. And it was because I thought I had killed Abraham Lincoln because I didn't understand the difference between imagination and memory. So when I imagined what must have happened when they were talking about in the documentary, it played in my head like a memory. And so I thought I was remembering doing it. It's weird that your imagination played it out in first person, though. As John Wilkes Booth as well. Um, Yeah, pretty weird. So maybe I was him in a past life. But uh, yeah. And my dad told that story at my sweet 16 Thank you, Paul. (laughs) Uh, Carrie, as you'll no doubt remember from your memories of that night. Of course. 
The president was laughing just before he was shot at a line of dialogue from the light comedy Our American Cousin. Mm-hmm. Major Henry Rathbone was also in the box, and after the shot was fired, he struggled with Booth, who dropped his gun immediately, pulled out a knife, and stabbed Rathbone in the arm. And then Booth went to, I guess in his mind, heroically jump from the box. Yeah. But his spur got tangled on a U.S. Treasury flag that was hanging there, and he badly broke his leg as he fell 12 feet to the <sighs> to the stage, and he landed on the stage. So the audience is confused. They're like, this is weird performance <laughs> art. Uh, and so Booth awkwardly limped across the stage, waving his bloody knife and yelling something that may have been sick Semper Tyrannus, mm-hmm. um, but people do um, disagree about what, what he yelled. Mm-hmm. Those weren't his last words, just his last known words. I mean, he was on the run after that, right? For uh, Yes, for almost two weeks. Mm-hmm. So as this was happening, his accomplice, Lewis Powell, by the way, was failing to kill the Secretary of State, William Seward. Um, Booth got his badly broken leg splinted and went to go hide out on a friend's farm. And eventually the 16th New York Cavalry showed up. I think it was like 12 days later to apprehend them. So Booth sees the soldiers coming up the drive. He cried, I won't be taken alive. And he went to flee the barn, which was already being burned by the soldiers. And as he got to the back door of the barn, he was immediately shot in the back of the head. Well, just about carry an inch below where Lincoln had been shot. A kind soldier poured water in the dying man's mouth, which he spat out. And Booth moaned his last words. Tell my mother I died for my country. I thought I did it for the best. Useless. Useless. Yeah, he got that right, John. And I love knowing that he died with that thought in his head. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a little funnier than John Wilkes Booth <laughs> is Charles Guiteau, who was a crazy person who campaigned without request and without very much um, audience interest for President James Garfield. He'd actually been stumping for somebody else, but then after that guy dropped out of the race, he just like crossed out that guy's name and wrote Garfield a couple of times. He delivered the speech twice, I think, to very small crowds, but he believed he'd be given a position in Garfield's administration for all this hard work he had done. Hmm. And when he wasn't immediately invited to the White House after the inauguration, he showed up at a train station and shot the president twice in the back before he surrendered to authorities. Guiteau is, we'll cover this assassination on the podcast for sure, because Guiteau is a madman. Uh, He tried to defend himself in court, but he wasn't allowed to. And then he caused problems for his defense team because they wanted to pursue one of the first insanity defenses in U.S. history. While Guiteau insisted he was not insane. He was only doing God's will. He's so insane that he's sane. Uh, When he wasn't cursing out the judge and the jury, Guiteau often wrote his testimony as terrible epic poems that he would read to the courtroom. Oh, God. Uh, Meanwhile, he was sure he would be let off at the end of all this, so he was actively making plans for a speaking tour upon his release and for a run for president in a few years. Yikes. When the guilty verdict was read, Guiteau yelled that the jury were low consummate jackasses. But that didn't do him any good either, and he was hanged in D.C. on June 30th of 1882. He had prepared a poem for the scaffold during his incarceration, which as a last request, he was allowed to read to the assembled crowd. And this is only the second half of that poem, which forms his last words on earth. 
I saved my party and my land. Glory, hallelujah. But they murdered me for it. And that is the reason I am going to the Lordy. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. I am going to the Lordy. I wonder what I will do when I get to the Lordy. I guess that I will weep no more when I get to the Lordy. Glory, hallelujah. I wonder what I will see when I get to the Lordy. I expect to see the most glorious things beyond all earthly conception when I am with the Lordy. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. I am with the Lord. And they hanged him. I guess you had to be there. (laughs) Jesus Christ. After about 20 glory hallelujahs. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we'll have more criminals last words for you and uh, along with some maybe more august historical figures after the break oh boy so when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport then they create dysfunctional delusional reality that's how a scam begins convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Welcome back. We are talking famous last words here on Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I promised you some criminals before the break, Carrie. Criminals, um, you often get, here's where you often get the bravado, you know? Well, you also get a pretty good, I mean, at least more modern ones, you get a pretty good sense of what they actually said, these people on death row and things like that, because there are many witnesses. Uh, that's true. Actually, in general, as we get closer to the modern age, I would say that you get more and more reliable last words generally. But you're right. These are said often in front of reporters, in front mm-hmm. of prison guards, in front of authority figures. So um, we can maybe be a little bit more sure about that. That said, I uh, disclaimer ahead of time, I think this first one may be apocryphal, but he said something very similar either way, and I really like it. <sighs> Arnold Rothstein, also known as The Brain, lived from 1882 to 1928. He was a famed New York City crime boss who supposedly rigged the 1919 World Series. Oh, that's how I knew the name. <laughs> uh, he was also in Boardwalk Empire, played by your your old friend Michael Stuhlbar- Stuhlbarg. Ugh, we love Stuhlbarg here. We love him, and he's really good and scary on that show. He's great in everything. Rothstein was shot during a business meeting, a business meeting, quote unquote, mm. at the Central Park Hotel after refusing, not forgetting or uh, trying to stretch the time, flatly refusing to pay a more than $300,000 debt that he'd incurred in one poker game, oh, God. which Rothstein claimed was rigged. So I'm not paying it. Mm-hmm. Um, he was shot. The police arrived quickly on the scene, and his last words are often recorded as being given to the police, asking him to finger his attackers. Sorry? Uh, who did this to you? Ah. Arnold. And in typical 
tight-lipped mafioso fashion, Rothstein's last words are said to be, my mother did it. Well, don't blame it on your mother. Now, a true mafioso, they would never say a bad word about their mother. (laughs) That's a good point. That's how we know this is fake. Certainly not in Italian. I saw another less colorful version where he told a friend, like, I... Uh, you you know I'm never going to squeal. I'm never going to tell you who did this. Mm-hmm. But uh, my mother did it is great. Now, if he had done your mother did this, first yo mama joke. Uh, yes, maybe of all time. Good. You know the Romans. With all the penis graffiti, you know they were doing your mother, you know, lies supine before the emperor or whatever. Yeah, all in Latin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, James W. Rogers, Caroline, was a security guard from Lubbock, Texas who was executed in San Juan County, Utah in 1960 for killing another man after an altercation. Rogers, uh, maybe the least famous person on this list, only became famous after his death because of his last words. Asked, Asked if he had any last requests before the firing squad took him out. Rogers said, I done told you my last request. A bulletproof vest. (laughs) Well, he gave it a shot. A guy can hope. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, Thomas J. Grasso was a bad, crazy guy. He was convicted of strangling an 87-year-old woman on Christmas Eve 1990 for, like, less than $20. Yeah, God. And killing an 80-year-old Staten Island resident for his social security check six months later. Mm. Bad guy. Yeah. For his last meal, we didn't cover this on the last meals podcast, Mm. Carrie, Grasso requested two dozen steamed mussels, two dozen steamed clams with a lemon wedge, a, a bur- just one just, for two dozen? Just one for the, and just for the clams. The mussels made no mention of lemon. Hmm. A Burger King double cheeseburger, half a dozen barbecue spare ribs, two strawberry milkshakes. I feel like I did mention this one, actually. Half a pumpkin pie with whipped cream. We, when we get to the punchline, you you can tell me. <laughs> Diced strawberries and a can of meatball SpaghettiOs. Oh, Jesus. He's most he must fa- have exploded. <laughs> Uh, he also, actually, similar to Charles Guiteau, he wrote a death poem on death row, which I won't bore you with, but you can look it up if you want, Tom, Thomas Grasso. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. But he's most famous for his last words before his death by lethal injection, which were, I did not get my SpaghettiOs. I got spaghetti, and I want the press to know this. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of this one for sure. It's irate. You know what? If it's your last meal, it's probably cheaper to get him SpaghettiOs. Well, get him the right thing. Spaghetti was better. Yeah, well, he wanted the SpaghettiOs. I, yeah. I, I get that. Sometimes you want a, a Kraft mac and cheese. You want that neon orange stuff. Um, serial killers. Are, are the, bad. They're bad. They're the worst kind of criminal. Human monsters. Monsters in human skin. Um, sometimes they sometimes they go out on a, on, on a, you know, a pretty memorable note. It, it, it has to be said. Sure. Carl Panzram, Carrie. We'll do a story on him sometime when we have the stomach for it yeah you can he was an american that means you have to hear the stories yeah but i don't have to read about it he was an american serial killer who makes up in numbers and in sheer hate what he lacks in name recognition i believe panzeram these aren't his last words but i think he's quoted as once saying i wish the whole human race had one neck and i had my hands around it nice guy he's believed to have killed He's believed by some, I should say, to have killed more than 100 people in America and some in Angola. He confessed to over 1,000 rapes as well, of males specifically, of all ages. He's a fascinating, scary guy who would later write that he had considered poisoning water supplies of cities and scuttling British ships in the New York Harbor to try to provoke wars um, just to kill as many people as he could. He hated 
people. Hmm. His prison journal, kept at the request of an officer who befriended him with cigarettes. Apparently, Panzeram was so taken aback at this guard's like kindness for getting him cigarettes that he was like, yeah, I'll write whatever you want. And he, wrote, he kept a, a whole journal in prison. <laughs> okay. And his journal starts with the line, in my lifetime, I have murdered 21 human beings. I've committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons, and last but not least, I've committed sodomy on more than 1,000 male human beings. For all these things, I am not in the least bit sorry. He and was, I doubt it. He was hanged September 5th, 1930, after spitting in the executioner's face as he put the black bag around Pan's Ram's fa- uh, you know, head. Mm-hmm. They asked him for any last words, and his answer was... Yeah, hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could kill a dozen men while you're screwing around. Mm-hmm. Then the floor went zip, and Carl Panzram went fall and thud. And that was the end of his awful time on the earth. That's for the best. Albert Fish, Caroline. Ugh. That's another one. Oh, is, God. Is one of the most horrifying people who's ever lived, and it'll probably take us longer to get to him on the podcast. Just because, cause of, just because we don't want to. It's unpleasant. Yeah. He was executed for three murders that he confessed to, although he claimed to have about 100 victims of rape, murder, or cannibalism in every state, all children. Best known, Fish was, for the murder of Grace Budd, a 10-year-old girl whose family Fish befriended before luring Grace away and disappearing. Mm-hmm. He later wrote Grace's mother a letter describing in detail how he had supposedly murdered, cooked, and eaten her daughter. Uh, fascinating thing about Fish, posthumous x-rays showed at least 29 needles and pins self-embedded in his pelvis. So he had stuck them in various areas of his uh, you know, groin and, and butt fan of pain uh mr fish was yeah the needles were for sexual purposes as uh one would imagine hmm. were the killings he was killed in the electric chair at sing sing where he cheerfully helped the executioner place the electrodes on his body before uttering his last words with a smile i don't know why i'm here <laughs> the sad thing is he probably enjoyed being electrocuted to death it was probably the happiest moment his his cold tiny dead heart ever had yeah too bad um soldiers carry to, to you know I, we've wallowed in 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 the grim depths of humanity for long enough soldiers often have truly inspiring last words or else they're the height of irony hmm. but we'll start with the former czech general jan ziska led his people in revolution against the Hungry- hungarian croatian empire and today he's considered a national czech hero after throwing off Hungarian rule in Bohemia, he took the fight to the enemy, invading Hungary and ultimately dying of plague because it was the 1400s while mm. trying to liberate Moravia. His last request is badass and was apparently meant to be taken literally. Make my skin into drumheads for the Bohemian cause. Damn. I don't think that was literally followed to the letter, but it did figuratively become true. His soldiers were so attached to him that thereafter they called themselves the Orphans. Wow. General John Sedgwick, born in 1813, was a Union general who died in 1864 at the start of the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Confederate sharpshooters were starting to take pot shots from like a thousand yards away or so, almost a kilometer. And Sedgwick was, his men were ducking for cover while Sedgwick just stood there. And he's, he's scolding his men for ducking uh, at single shots. 
His last words are recorded as, they couldn't hit an elephant at this di- Nope. Before he was shot under his left eye and died on the spot. Sir? Sir? Admiral, Admiral Horatio Nelson is certainly the best-known British naval officer of all time, maybe one of the best-known soldiers of all time. Mm-hmm. He won a string of victories, Carrie, that secured British fortunes in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. He beat Napoleon at uh, the Nile. Mm-hmm. He was fatally wounded, however, at the Battle of Trafalgar, which would end up being a British victory, but not before a French sharpshooter hit Nelson fatally. His flag captain, his loyal second, Thomas Hardy, was standing by below decks as he died. The famously staid and masculine sailor is said to have whispered, and this is really a beautiful, I'm going to try not to get choked up, uh, at the, in the last moments, you just want human tenderness and connection. Ideally, you probably want to be held, like Wade in Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. And the famously staid and masculine sailor whispered to his flag captain, Kiss me, Hardy. Oh. And Hardy leaned down and kissed him on the cheek, then straightened up, waited a minute, and then I guess just for good measure, leaned down and kissed him on the forehead, mm-hmm. at which Nelson said, Who is that? And he told him who it was, and he said, God bless you, Hardy. Oh. Uh, those weren't his... Le- he lasted a little bit longer, though, and Hardy records his last words as... Thank God I've done my duty. God and my country. So good, good man. dude. Man, wow. that's that's how you want to go out. I guess. Ask another man for a kiss and then and then uh, <laughs> thank thank be thankful for your duty. Is there something you want to tell me, Sean? What? <laughs> uh, George Custer Carey uh, didn't want to kiss when he was dying. Um, he was a, of course, a Union general who won a few minor skirmishes late in the Civil War. He actually got his command just before Gettysburg. He contributed to the victory there. But after the war, he was sent to the West to more or less head up the Indian Wars. And by Indian Wars, I mean the slow but sure genocide the U.S. was waging on the original inhabitants of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Custer would ultimately die, along with every one of his men, at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Sitting Bull, his, uh, one of his opponents in that battle, uh, described the story he heard of Custer's death in an interview with the New York Herald the next year, 1877. Which kind of puts in perspective how modern all this is. Yeah, wow. Sitting Bull said, It is said that up there where the last fight took place, where the last stand was made, the long hair, oh, the, the uh, natives called Custer the long hair. Mm. The long hair stood like a sheaf of corn with all the ears fallen around him. He killed a man when he fell. He laughed. The interviewer said, you mean he cried out? And Sitting Bull went, no, he laughed. <laughs> he had fired his last shot. Um, so there you go. No last words there. Just Custer gets last shot. laugh, literally. He, he killed a man and laughed and then died. All right. Um, Sitting Bull, by the way, says Custer wasn't scalped. They didn't want his scalp because in his words, he was a great chief. Hmm. Interesting. Very Last soldier, Carrie. Captain Bucky O'Neill. Have you ever heard of Bucky O'Neill? I feel like I have, but maybe I'm mistaking him for Bucky uh, from Barnes. From yeah, from Marvel. So I, I don't know. Well, there's a little bit of a similar. I wonder if Bucky Barnes is named after Bucky O'Neill hmm. because there's a little bit of the Captain America. 
the Captain America story echoes a little bit the story of the Rough Riders, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Or certainly Nick Fury and his howling commandos, right, echo the Rough Riders. Captain Bucky O'Neill was a politician, journalist, and an unlikely combatant in the Spanish-American War because he joined up with the 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry. Now, this was a unit formed that was meant to supplement unarmed forces that had shrunk since the Civil War ended. And it was originally meant, the plan was to load this unit up with, okay, they won't be soldiers, but we'll get like the best of the best of the American frontier. You know, guys in coonskin caps and, and uh, uh, leather deerstalker clothes and stuff. That's who we're going to have out here fi- helping us fight this war. But then Teddy Roosevelt was put in charge, and he attracted an odd mix of folks to <laughs> the Rough Riders from former Texas Rangers, uh, the Rangers, not the baseball players, uh, to Native Americans, to Ivy League athletes, he had like football players and stuff, to glee club singers. Like just people who were like, oh, that, uh, that, that guy, that guy I know from Harvard? Yeah, I'll go fight with him, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, O'Neill had started as an Arizona court reporter then became a newspaper editor, then a judge, because I guess you didn't have to be a lawyer to be a judge then. Oh, okay, career shift. He was a judge and later a sheriff in Yavapai County and then mayor of Prescott, Arizona. And this whole time he was also speculating on gold, making some good money there, and making occasional runs for the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. I don't think those were ever successful, but he was interested in politics, it sounds like, primarily. But at the outbreak of the Spanish-American War, he joined the Rough Riders because it sounded like a fun adventure, and he was soon leading troops at the Battle of Lagisimus. Now, Roosevelt would later say that O'Neill had a theory that officers should never take cover in front of their men. They should be the bravest ones on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And he was living by that on July 1st, 1898, when the Rough Riders were stationed below Kettle Hill. O'Neill, smoking a cigarette, had just told another soldier... Sergeant, the Spanish bullet isn't made that will kill me. (laughs) And then he was immediately murdered. I quote Teddy Roosevelt for this next part, who was there. As he turned on his heel, a bullet struck him in the mouth and came out the back of his head. So that even even before he fell, his wild and gallant soul had gone out into the darkness. Damn, Teddy. I love Teddy. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Just as a person, I don't know about his, I don't know enough about his history or politics. Don't quote me on that if he's done some really bad shit, but he's an interesting person. He was a man of his time. Certainly was. Uh, Carrie, we just talked about uh, soldiers. We talked about criminals. There's a group that sort of brings them both together. I'm fumbling for a transition here. Royalty? Revolutionaries. (laughs) Close. (laughs) Carrie, revolutionaries, freedom fighters, often, and this will come as no surprise to you or our listeners, often have the uh, most acerbic and uh, defiant words for their uh, executors, Mm -hmm. executioners. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorites is Georges Danton, who we've talked about before Mm -hmm. in our episode on Madame la Guillotine. Danton was a French lawyer and revolutionary. He was actually, and listen, the French Revolution is monstrously complicated, and if you want an oversimplification of it, go to our guillotine episode, where I think we get the important facts in there to understand the reign of terror. The gist. The gist. You could never understand the reign of terror. No. Danton was the first president of the Committee of Public Safety, and one of the architects of the Revolutionary Tribunal that would end up coming for his own head, once he started advocating an end to all this, you know, head-cutting. Hubris. 
uh, on the scaffold there before Madame la Guillotine on April 5th, 1794, Danton instructed his executioner, you will show my head to the people. It is worth seeing. Okay. Well, you know. It's a pretty good head. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, also taken by the revolution, although not a revolutionary herself, but I have to mention Marie Antoinette, the queen who was executed in 1793, much less bold than Danton as she was led to the scaffold after a trial that had done its level best to convince the French people that she had not only been conspiring against them, but also sexually molesting her own son. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing they did to Anne Boleyn. Yeah. The last words of the defeated Marie Antoinette were, I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean to. After she had stepped on the executioner's foot. Yeah. And then off with her head. Yep. Karl Marx died in 1883, Caroline. Now, he wasn't an actual revolutionary, of course, but he was a social one. He's often considered one of the founders of modern social science. And, of course, his writings inspired many, many violent revolutions in the 20th century. Marxism. And, yes, and, and, and further Leninism. <laughs> uh, Marx's maid is said to have entered his room before his death. Like, look, you're a big important figure. She was asking if he had any last words to be remembered for posterity. And Marx yelled at her, Go on, get out! Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Okay. Ironically, these would go down as famous <laughs> last words. Sure. Uh, and irony is so often a part of these famous last words stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the men who was most inspired by Marx, of course, Carey, and I just said his name, was V.I. Lenin, who was born in 1870, a Marxist revolutionary who was exiled from Russia only to return in 1917 after the Tsar had been overthrown. Oh, boy. Russia in 1917 is a podcast, by the way. That's, that's horror. Well, we have to start with Rasputin. Rasputin. To replace the... so As Henry Zabrowski says, I make this shit look good. <laughs> so Lenin returned to replace the provisional government that had been set up after the Tsar was ousted with a Bolshevik communist one. Mm-hmm. He would ultimately establish a totalitarian dictatorship of the proletariat that oversaw mass killings of political dissidents and total repression of non-communist speech and thought. So it didn't go great. It didn't go great, huh? Um, and he, but he, I think, lived in hope that he would write the ship eventually, mm. until a series of strokes took his speech and then his life in 1924. As he was lying in his deathbed, one of Lenin's dogs, not knowing how else to comfort him, brought in a dead bird that it had killed outside and walked over to his bedside with it and dropped it on the floor. The chairman's last words on earth were supposedly, good dog. It's kind of sweet if he's not Vladimir Lenin. It's humanizing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Poe's never killed any animals. He killed a big moth once and he was very proud about that. Yeah, you. Yeah, one would imagine. Um, now I'm actually, <laughs> it was about as big as his head, so. <laughs> now, I'm actually going a little bit out of order here because this uh, last revolutionary was born after Lenin but died a year before him in 1923. Of course, Carrie, I'm talking about Pancho Villa, mm-hmm. the Mexican revolutionary general who helped to force out President Porfirio Diaz. Then there was an ins- just a series of coups and civil wars. It got really messy. At one point, the U.S. government was supposedly considering backing Villa. He had gotten enough power around him that uh, him and his other military buddies were kind of ruling by fiat. And the, the U.S. was like, these might be the guys. I don't know. Um, but 
the United States ended up coming down on the other side of another civil war. And ultimately, Villa was killed by political enemies on July 20th, 1923, when more than 40 dum-dum rounds were fired into his car. Uh, Dum-dum rounds are like giant big game hunting, like elephant rounds. Oh, not just like little lollipops? (laughs) Yeah, they shot him with a bunch of uh, uh, bubblegum, blue raspberry flavored I could imagine those would hurt. Yeah, with sticks or without. (laughs) Yeah. So more than 40 of these rounds were fired into his car. Villa was killed along with his driver, his secretary, and two of his bodyguards. One bodyguard survived but was injured. This was Ramon Contreras, who killed one of the fleeing assassins and reported Villa's last words as, Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. (laughs) He didn't. And and, he didn't. And those Uh, are the last words we have recorded. Thanks a lot, Contreras. Just, you know what? I can't, I'm never good on the spot. Just tell them. (laughs) Just tell them I came up with something good. Oh, man, I'm not great either, boss. (laughs) Uh, you mentioned royals before, Carrie. I didn't. And we already did get Marie Antoinette out here. But whether they're apocryphal or not, royals are often recorded as having great and important last words. Mm-hmm. Royals, nobles, and I even have some just politicians here because in America, of course, we've never had royals or nobles. But let's start with Elizabeth I, Carrie. Born in 1533, daughter of friend of the show, Henry VIII. <laughs> He's not. She succeeded her half-sister, Mary I. We heard about Mary's um, Protestant killing uh, uh, affectation earlier in the show. Elizabeth was cut from a different cloth, and she established the English Protestant Church, which would later become the Church of England. She ruled for 45 relatively peaceful years while building around herself this massive cult of personality that was weirdly obsessed with her virginity. Mm Mm-hmm. In the fall of 1602 to early 1603, unfortunately, a series of deaths among her close friends and her favorites sent her into a severe depression. And in, I believe, April of 1603, her possibly apocryphal last words from her deathbed are a reminder, Caroline, that you can have all the money, power, love, fame in the world, but it doesn't buy everything. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth is said to have said, all my possessions for a moment of time. Oof. Big oof. That hits. And she didn't get it. Yeah. In 1728, the Comtesse de Vercellis was dying. Take your pick on that pronunciation. She was a noblewoman who uh, actually employed a young Rousseau, one of the most important political philosophers of the Enlightenment age. Rousseau was her secretary when he was a young man, before he was famous, before he was philosophizing. The Comtesse was surrounded by friends at her deathbed, including her young secretary, Rousseau. And she just let one rip. Just just let a, a nice long fart out, shocking <laughs> everyone in the room. Okay. And she's said to have muttered, Good, a woman who can fart is not dead. And then she died a few minutes later. Well, she choked herself to death on the fumes. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, so that's a story Rousseau gave us. Thanks. Uh, here's another French noble lady who had a flair for the dramatic on the way out. Is that what you would call a massive fart? Uh, Madame de Pompadour was, I think, 43 years old when she was dying. She had been the official chief mistress of Louis XV and a major patron of the arts, as well as like having real say in the domestic and foreign policy of the country, because she was in the king's ear all the time and arguably smarter than him. And a character on Doctor Who. 
and a character on Doctor Who. Uh, she was much hated by her enemies right up until her death from tuberculosis in 1764. On her deathbed, Madame de Pompadour felt the moment coming, and she said to have called to God, oh, wait a second, and pulling out her compact and applying makeup <laughs> one last time before she went to meet the big guy. All right, fair enough. I like it. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. That's a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frederick the Great Caroline. These, by the way, are in... These are in historical order, as we're within the nobles here. So this does put everybody on a, on a timeline for you, mm-hmm. straighten them out. Frederick the Great w- lived around the same time as Madame de Pompadour. He was the king of Prussia, and he greatly expanded the country's borders while modernizing the bureaucracy and being like mostly tolerant of religious differences. He suppressed Catholics a little bit. You know, you're going to suppress Catholics a little in the 1700s. Um, and, but he was big on immigration. He was big on everybody except the Catholics uh, doing anything they wanted to religiously. Um, he was called Frederick, Frederick the Great because he was into like enlightened despotism. He thought the best form of government was, well, there should be kings, but the kings should be really concerned with the well-being of their people. I mean, th- Yeah. But that's they not, should have been the whole time. Yeah, but that's not how kings have thought <laughs> no. through most history. No, no. Uh, Frederick was largely crippled with asthma and gout in his later years. And he was sitting in an armchair in his study when he gestured, gestured to one of his prized greyhounds. The dog was apparently moaning and uh, kind of, you know, writhing around like they might when they're cold, crying for, for a blanket. <laughs> Peanut does this for sure. Yes. And Frederick said, throw a quilt over her. Those were his last words as he died in the chair and was buried, as his will stated, next to his uh, other greyhounds, who, by the way, he called his Marquises de Pompadour. No. (laughs) Um, Which was both to make fun of the uh, French mistress, but also, um, you know, because he loved his dog so much. That's kind of cute. He didn't have any mistresses. He was almost certainly gay. Well, he was a good doggy dad. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Carrie, have you ever heard of Ramon Maria Nerves? No. I hadn't either, but he was a Spanish general and a two-time prime minister. He was in his second term in 1868 when he died. He had helped Ferdinand VII suppress revolutionary democratic ideas after Ferdinand was restored to the throne. This was after a democratic revolution in uh, Spain. And sometimes uh, Nervaeus was known for using brutal tactics in uh, bringing, you know, in bringing the counter-revolution to, to kind of fullness. A priest implored him on his deathbed to forgive his enemies. And Nervaeus is recorded as saying, I do not have to forgive my enemies. I've had them all shot. <laughs> I mean, he was himself till the very end. Know thyself. That's mm-hmm. what they say. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was doing. Uh, finally, Carrie, some of these I've included not because they're particularly interesting even, certainly not because they're funny, but just because I they, they're in the mold of what I would like for, for my own I, people who meet death with a grace that I would wish to when I get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Washington, the founder of oh, our... Oh, God, you're going to make me cry. I'm f- thinking one last time from Hamilton. The father of our Oof. country died in September of 1799 after an infection caused violent inflammation of the throat, that's quoting his doctor, and things proceeded quickly. Within a week after his sore throat starting, on December 18th, Washington told his bedside attendants, I am about to die, and I am not afraid to die. 
I thank you for your attention, and I pray you to take no more trouble for me. Let me go quietly. I cannot last long. And he didn't. Uh, many people will know that Washington's will, as long as we're talking about his death, his will also freed his 160 slaves upon the death of his wife, Martha. Well, because they were her family's slaves, right? He'd gotten some of them from her family, but no, she had a lot of her own slaves, and he had well, his I, own slaves he brought okay. into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but their slaves had intermarried a bunch, mm. and so he didn't want... That would get legally confusing if he was freeing his, but he couldn't free no, Martha's. Uh, no, I know. I just, for some reason, I thought that she had brought them in with the marriage. He also, he got a lot more property and a lot more family slaves at that point, but I don't think those are the ones he was freeing here. He also forbade their sale or transfer out of Virginia and provided for the children and elderly out of his estate indefinitely. So all the slaves who weren't of working age, he was like, yeah, free them after Martha dies and also take care of them as long as they need. Uh, Martha, by the way, would actually sign an order freeing George's slaves just a year after his death, before, uh, be- long before she went. Yeah. I mean, when we call, you know, when I'm sad about him dying, when we call him a, a great man, as Dan Carlin would say, a capital G, capital M, great man. Oh, those don't have to be good men. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he owned slaves. So, again, a man of his times, you can, you can reckon with that how you will. He's just about, I mean, there's really not many of these guys who freed their slaves. Yeah. Well, that's at, the thing. I mean, if, you know. After their death or before, you know, so. Yeah, he, he could have been worse about it, I guess, but there's there's yeah, not not many worse things to do. So it, you got to reckon these things with the, the time periods they come in and the choices these people made. And on that happy note. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. Um, authors and celebrities, it's not just important people. It's not just bad people. Uh, some people were just fascinated with while they're alive mm-hmm. because of their wit and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that often um, is... That often continues right through their, their last couple of words or quips. Um, and I want to start this section with famed quipster Niccolo Machiavelli. Quipster, you call him. <laughs> A quipster. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, that Machiavelli uh, lived from 1469 to 1527 in Florence, Italy. He was a diplomat and bureaucrat, best known for his political treatise, The Prince, which I don't think was published till after he had died. But the thesis of which can basically be summed up as, that's politics, baby! That's what I remember from poli-sci in college. Sorry, Professor Supios. <laughs> um, Machiavelli died at 58 years old. I can't find a cause of death. And that we don't know how he died puts real doubt on his supposed last words. Mm-hmm. Especially because they're so appropriate to his kind of um, political legacy that you just don't know if these were just put in his mouth by someone else. Because mm-hmm. what do you mean? We don't know what killed him, but we do know. Uh, we know he got last rites, and then he supposedly said, I desire to go to hell and not to heaven. In the former place, I shall enjoy the company of popes, kings, and princes, while in the latter are only beggars, monks, hermits, and apostles. So you're saying he he quoted... Only the Good Die Young by Billy Joel on the way out? Uh, yes. Oh, sorry. I, d- I didn't say that right. I desire to go to hell and not to heaven <laughs> in the form of place I... <laughs> I, think, I think it goes, um, rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. What a quip. What a tit. What a tit. Nostradamus, Carrie. Okay, he's a quipster. He's pretty quippy. I didn't know what section to put him in. Is he a celebrity? He's a... I mean, yeah. He's more celebrities and authors than any any of these other things. Yeah. 
So uh, Nostradamus died in 1566. I think everybody knows. <laughs> Bet he didn't see that coming. Ha! <laughs> I, 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 uh, it's funny you say that. Everybody knows uh, Nostradamus as this astrologer who wrote all these predictions about the future. Very vague, weird things. People will tell you a lot of them happened. So many more of them didn't. Yeah, we've talked about them in our new segments sometimes. Um, we like to do a Nostradamus roundup each new year. Yes. Um, <laughs> Nostradamus, what he apparently couldn't see coming was that all that rich food he was eating would give him gout, which turned into edema. And on the evening of July 1st, 1566, he said to have made one final prediction to his secretary. Tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. And in that prediction, at least... <laughs> Nostradamus was right. Yeah, but he had some some inside intel on that one, I think. He did, but it's the most accurate one he ever made. Yeah, true. Um, I was joking about quipsters before, Carrie, but here's an actual quipster. Oscar Wilde. Ugh, my boy. Um, after a glittery... Glittery? I mean, <laughs> Oscar Wilde. After a glittering literary career <laughs> is what I meant to say. Uh, Okay, I thought you were just being stereotypical. The peaks of which include, well, he was, I mean, you know, he was, he was glitterati for sure. Oh, absolutely. The peaks of his career include the picture of Dorian Gray, which I read when I was like eight years old. We, we read a lot of things when we were too young. It really stuck with me. Uh, and the importance of being earnest. Mm -hmm. Wilde died of meningitis in 1900. Before he shuffled off this mortal coil, Carrie... The Oh, I have it in my notes right here. Eternal quipster. Sure. And forever fashion snob muttered, My wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us must go. Well, I love him. He's, oh, oh me too. He's the best. He's the best. He's also he's, he's one of the best. He's one of the best. He's also said to have drunk champagne in his deathbed. And he joked, I'm dying as I lived. Beyond my means. <laughs> God, did he have those stored up? He was just coming up with those? I'm sure he had a little, uh, like a moleskin in his <laughs> yeah. back pocket. He was just writing quips down in. Well, I would too if I were Oscar Wilde. Um, our next is uh, no less a 20th century figure, Carrie, than Louis B. Mayer. Mm. <laughs> Carrie makes it. I wish I'd raped more starlets. What did he say? Uh, Louis B. Mayer, aside from raping dozens of starlets, mm. uh, founded MGM and basically created old Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, developing and producing hundreds of hit story films over a long career that made him and his family millions and millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. As he was dying of leukemia in 1957, the incredibly cheerful mayor muttered, it wasn't worth it. And those were his last words. Sayonara, I guess. It's like when it's not a nice person, it's kind of fun. <laughs> he was not a nice person. You know who was a nice person? Groucho Marx. We love Groucho. Maybe one of the funniest people ever to walk the planet, and certainly... Just, just so funny. Cer certainly from the vaudeville age to the mid-20th century, he was one of the most important figures in American art. Mm -hmm. And as he was dying at age 86 of pneumonia, I think he might have outlived all of the other uh, Marx brothers... Groucho said one last... Gummo had died like a couple weeks or a couple days before him. Um, Groucho said one last characteristically sardonic line. There's no way to live. God, he was just the best. The best. What do you, how could you beat that for famous last words? You can't. Um, these last two are sad and beautiful, Carrie. First sad, then beautiful. Bob Marley sadly died in 1981. 
from malignant melanoma that started under his toenail. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marley famously refused to have his toe amputated, which his doctor suggested, uh, due to both his religious beliefs. I don't want to speak. I'm not a. I'm not a Rasta. I don't want to speak out of turn. But I believe that there's I, a belief I, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven if you don't have a complete body. Yeah, I think. <laughs> We were very, very typical tourists, and we read a lot about Bob Marley in Jamaica. He is a national, I mean, if you've never been, uh, he's just a national hero for very good reason. Um, He did a lot of great things. And so I think we we read a lot about him while we were there because we we were just surrounded by him. And I I think that's, that's kind of what we came down to was that it was a religious thing. And, and potentially also because it would have been impacted live performance. You can't dance with a toe missing. But I think you the other... You can't dance if you're dead. True. It is said that uh, his last words to his son Ziggy just before the end were, money can't buy life. Which is true. But sometimes getting your toe removed can. Yeah. But he, you know, he was a really good guy. I, I remember watching a, a documentary about him and he gave all of the proceeds i forget which song it is now it was one of his biggest songs maybe like one love or three little birds or something he gave all of the proceeds he gave the rights to that song uh, i should say to um a, a local neighborhood friend who ran like a soup kitchen or something so that the the soup kitchen would always have money coming in just from that song it's pretty amazing that is amazing uh, this last one I included just for you, Carrie. Okay. Stop me if you know it. The last words of Richard Burton, who died in oh, 1984. Man, you're gonna get me with this. Do you know? Was it in his letter? The N- letter he left. No, but that was um, buried with Elizabeth Taylor, right? She was buried with a letter from him. Yeah, but I, I think I think I know what it is. He, keep going. The seven-time Academy Award nominee, who never the bride should have won who suffered a cerebral hemorrhage at age 58, was on his deathbed next to his longtime friend, actor John Hurt. And Hurt said at the end, Burton was speaking, as he often did, of Elizabeth Taylor. Mm -hmm. His last words are said to be, she still fascinates me. Oh, shit. (laughs) Watching my wife's eyes just well up over here. Listen, um, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor is one of my favorite people to to read about, to learn about. Um, she's she was a fascinating person. She was very complicated. She did some shitty things. Um, she was very human, and um, so I've read a lot about her. I've read a lot about them. One of my favorite favorite books um, is a nonfiction book about basically a biography of their love story called furious love um has never failed to make me cry when i finish it which i've read it a few times and um oh god something about those two it's um it's a tragic tragic story they couldn't live with each other but they couldn't live with without each other they were it was furious love they they burned each other out um and I think they both they both talked about each other at the end. I think those who knew Elizabeth said that she she was talking about him a lot um, as she was dying. So hopefully they're they're somewhere somewhere drinking champagne and and yachting together right now. 
And for more on that, uh, tune in to Carrie's future hit <laughs> podcast, Love Affairs. Yes, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll cover them sometime on a different show. All right, Carrie, we've got a little bit of time left, just a little. And uh, I'm going to do as I promised and get to these epitaphs, because I know you love a good epitaph. I love a good grave. You love a good grave. Um, you, now, have you ever seen, you've seen, we've, we've never been to Boot Hill Cemetery or to Tombstone, but have you seen pictures of the graves at Boot Hill? They, they're like... Yeah. I mean, actually, if, if you picture kind of the Back to the Future 3 cemetery, you know, it's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Very simple stones with some stuff painted. I forget if I talked about that one on Haunted Cemeteries, but I know it's supposed to be haunted. Um, <laughs> there are some great, colorful epitaphs on the graves at Boot Hill, and I've got two of my favorites here. Uh, one says, Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. That's no less L-E-S, like no, short for his name. I get it. Here okay. lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. You know what? Now that's a poem, uh, all right? Yeah, thanks, Charles Guiteau. Jeez. Lester, by the way, was a Wells Fargo agent who was shot to death by a customer named Frank Dunton in 1880. He, by the way, in the same moment, shot and killed Dunston. I don't know what... Shot and killed Dunton. I don't know what Dunton's uh, headstone says, hmm. um, but that's a nice little uh, note to that story. Mm-hmm. Another grave in Boot Hill, the other best one, says, here lies... Now, George Johnson was apparently um, hanged after he had bought a stolen horse, but then after he was hanged, it turned out that he was telling the truth about not knowing the horse was stolen. Ooh. And so his epitaph says... Here lies George Johnson, hanged by mistake, 1882. <laughs> he was right, we was wrong, but we strung him up and now he's gone. Gotta get the last word, and that's the last word, I mean, man. These, these are like haunted mansion gravestones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like something you'd get at uh, Spirit Halloween, like a foam one from for your yard. So now I wonder, I, I can't find other like rhyming comedy gravestones like that. <laughs> Is they, like When you see that at the haunted mansion, are they stealing that from Boot Hill? Maybe. Just a few other badass uh, inscriptions on the graves of famous people, Carrie, before we wrap up. You know of Jesse Woodson James. Mm-hmm. Jesse James. Jesse James, the famous outlaw. Um, his stone says, Jesse Woodson James, September 5th, 1847, murdered April 3rd, 1882, by a traitor and coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. Good. Don't give him the space. I mean, you're probably giving him more words than, and, and than know, just his name. And but. we know from Brad Pitt that his name is Robert Ford. Yeah, if you ever get to the end of the title of that friggin' movie. <laughs> Easier than getting to the end of the runtime, let me tell you. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. It's good, though. It's worth the patience. I like that movie. Whew, I need a bottle of water. Um, Mel Blanc, famed Looney Tunes voice actor. His stone says, that's all, folks. And can you even beat that? 1908 to 1989, man of a thousand voices, beloved husband and father. Some of these just have the joke. Sure. Maybe the joke and the dates. Um, but this one, they also insisted, like, I'm sure he just wanted that's all, folks. And his no. wife and kids were like, we're going to mention that you're a beloved husband and father. No, or it went the other way. Who knows? Could be. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield has no dates on his stone. It only says, Rodney Dangerfield, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Oh, boy. Funny guy. Very funny guy. Um, Jack Lemons might be my favorite. 
Also no dates. The Stone. Fabulous actor, Jack Lemmon. Fabulous uh, old Hollywood actor, Jack Lemmon. I, old Hollywood, don't look at me like that. Old Hollywood's well, anything that was in black and white. Yeah, I guess. But he was also in JFK and that was in 91. So it, it just, you know. That second version of Mad Max Fury Road they made where it was high contrast black and white. That's old Hollywood to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jack Lemmon Stone just says in big letters, Jack Lemmon in colon. And then there's just the ground below it. God. That's funny. That's great. That's a joke. And he was a featured player in so many things. So And and Jack Lemmon in would right. be all the time. Oh, but he, yeah. here's, here's his last role. Jack Lemmon in The Ground. Uh, one of the best. Great dramatic actor. Great comedic actor. Just, just a fun guy. Um, speaking of a sense of humor, these last two have senses of humor too. Actress Joan Hackett. Her stone says, Joan Hackett, 1934 to 1983. Go away. I'm asleep. <laughs> That's me. Which, n- nothing specific to her life or career or anything, just like a, a weird comedy bit. Well, if you knew her, you know, it, it might make a lot of sense. I sleep a lot, so that would be appropriate for me. Now that's that's true, but now she's also <laughs> sleeping eternally. With the fishes. No, it's okay. in the ground. Okay. Uh, and finally, Merv Griffin's stone says, Merv Griffin, July 6th, 1925 to August 12th, 2007. I will not be right back after this message. <laughs> And he uh, never was. Well, yeah. And so that's our whistling through the graveyard, Carrie. That's our little look at last lines, famous last words, and um, just some of my favorite epitaphs. Has this made you feel any more comfortable about onrushing death? No. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing Podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. It's true crime time. There has finally been an arrest in the case of the Delphi murders, the heretofore unsolved killings of teenagers Abigail Williams and Liberty German in Delphi, Indiana, back in 2017. For those who may not be familiar, Williams and German were reported missing on February 13, 2017, after they failed to turn up at a family meetup location at the end of a hike on the Delphi Historic Trails which are about uh, 75 miles northwest of Indianapolis. Unfortunately, their bodies were found in the area the following day along a railroad bridge near Deer Creek. Libby posted a final photo of Abby walking across the Manon High Bridge to Snapchat before the girls disappeared. Whoa, uh, real shades of Chris Kremers. Yeah, yeah. 
and, and even more modern because we have this sort of social media aspect. The case the case came to public prominence just after the girls were found, thanks to Indiana State Police circulating a still image of an individual reportedly seen on the Manon High Bridge Trail near where the two friends were slain. Chillingly, the image came from a video recording Libby German herself made on her phone moments before the girls were killed. The video shows a white male dressed in jeans, a hoodie, and a blue jacket with his hands in his pockets walking toward the two eighth graders on the bridge. Libby then slipped the phone in her pocket but continued recording. Horrifyingly, she captured her killer gruffly saying, hey guys, down the hill, kind of ordering them. And then the video ended, I think, soon after. German was called a hero by law enforcement for having had the presence of mind and bravery to secretly record the exchange. The suspect arrested on October 28th of this year, one Richard M. Allen, is a 50-year-old local pharmacy technician. And this is a, a pretty creepy detail. Libby's grandmother, Becky Patty, told reporters that Allen once processed photos for the family at the CVS store in Delphi where Allen worked. Oh, like one hour photo. Yes. Quote, I went to the store to print photos of Libby for the funeral, and he was the one who helped me. I was a mess trying to get the images off my phone. Once they were printed, he looked at me and said, I'm not going to charge you for this. However, Allen's arrest file has been sealed, so we don't know exactly what evidence has led law enforcement to his door, only that there was probable cause. Visually, he does seem to fit the grainy image captured on the phone video, and in one of the creepier details to emerge, a photo posted to Facebook by Allen's wife Kathy in 2018 shows their daughter, Brittany, posing on the same Mananhai Bridge where Libby and Abby were last seen alive. Well, presumably... I just at a at a guess, his wife and daughter pro- usually serial killers' wives and daughters don't know about their. No, it's just creepy that his daughter took a picture in the same place, right. and who knows if he's the one who took the picture. So um, we'll be sure to keep all of you updated on this horrific case, and again, uh, we might cover it in the future. But we especially want to say that our condolences are still with the families of the girls. Um, it must be so difficult for this to be unsolved and be such a public case. And it keeps on getting sort of drummed up again and again when new suspects come in. But this is the first time I think that a, an arrest has been made. So hopefully they'll get some answers soon. And hopefully whoever did this will get the justice they deserve. But um, yeah, we're, uh, we're sending all, all of our thoughts and prayers, I guess, to the family both families. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us, too, and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will, and special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nick Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, 
era. And uh, hello again to our newest patron, Kate Pope. It was uh, so nice seeing you on that library presentation last week. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll even see you in Salem this weekend. No pressure. <laughs> and uh, we want to shout out our friend Diego in Chile. He wrote into us on Instagram saying how much he enjoys the show. Um, maybe he's our only Chilean listener. But uh, it was pretty crazy and awesome to hear from someone so far away from us who enjoys the show. So hi, Diego. Hope you're still enjoying everything. Thank you so much for reaching out and saying that you enjoy what we do. And um, yeah, anyone else who wants to, to shout us out on social media or whatever, we'd love to respond. See you all next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.